Welcome to TG2Cast. I'm Arthur Caravelli, co-founder of Teachers Going Gradeless. In this episode, I interview Benjamin Dockstader, a Canadian expat who teaches middle school language arts at an international school in Brussels, Belgium. Benjamin is probably best known for his essays and his blog, Longview on Education, where he, among other things, interrogates the rhetoric of education reform, technology, and futurism, and the way these conversations can often numb us to, and in fact exacerbate, the rampant inequity, poverty, and precarity plaguing our profession. I'm proud to say he's written an excellent piece for teachers going gradeless as well, Grades, Equity, and the Grammar of School. Welcome, Benjamin. Hi, how are you doing, Arthur? Great. It's great to finally talk with you. I mean, I feel like we've been uh, DMing forever, and and I feel like I, I really, uh, I find your life in Brussels uh, so appealing, and I've, I've really enjoyed your writing, so it's great to finally talk Thank with you. Thank you very again. much. Or, yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be in an actual conversation. I, I'm a big fan of using Twitter, obviously, but uh, it's nice to actually uh, have a rhythm of back and forth where you hear people's voices, and uh, yeah, it's, I'm really excited to be here. Cool. Well, so first of all, I think I, I think I even butchered this again, but let's let me hear your last name. <clears throat> How do you say it? What are its origins? And, and, and maybe even I don't know. Do you know what it means? Possibly? Yeah. So it's uh, pronounced Dockstater. Um, it's spelled a bit. Di- it's spelled differently in different parts of Southern Ontario. Uh, it's a First Nations name. Um, and uh, basically, if you look at the sort of the history of colonization here, there was a lot of intermarriage as sort of like a colonial strategy. Um, somebody, uh, a woman named Ann Stoller calls it a strategic tactic of conquest. And so mm. it goes back to a guy named uh, Han Yeri Dockstader. Um, and uh, he had a First Nations last name, but his dad was a white German or Dutch colonist. And so um, the name sounds German. When I'm in Europe, a lot of people think it's maybe German or Dutch. Um, but in this area of Southern Ontario, people would know it as a First Nations last name. Okay. That is very interesting. Um, you have de-emphasized grades. You have mm-hmm. kind of connected yep. up with our group a little bit. And I just, I just wonder, how, does, how do your thoughts around grades and assessment um, connect up with any of your commitments as a teacher? It's, I mean, I do... I remember hearing a little bit about your own experience with grades and how it became kind of a situation where you almost couldn't dig yourself out and and you were really lacking in that regard. Talk to us a little bit about that history, that transition. Sure. Uh, Yeah. As a student, I had never experienced what gradeless might look like. And for me, that assessment and instruction piece really go together. I feel like I was also never really taught strategies for how to write well and as a teacher, I see those things as very interlinked, um, teaching strategies and assessing strategies that the kids are learning and having a grade and putting a number on that, I just find to be counterproductive. It's better to, mm-hmm. um, have a conversation with the kid about, okay, well, we're trying to learn how to use dialogue. Why don't you tell me about how that's going for you? What ideas you have? Um, and so gradeless for me and at first, I was sort of primed for a lot of this through my school. Um, they Before mm-hmm. I had arrived there, they had all been reading Ken O'Connor, maybe three or four years before that. And so formative assessment was really big in their minds. I think being in English actually helps because I think there's a lot of stuff in the pedagogy of English and things like writer's workshop and so on 
that I think really easily predispose us to doing away with grades. Yeah, I, and I think that's that's absolutely right. And and I mean, I think some of what you're talking about here is it, you 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 articulated so well um, in the article that you wrote for us, grades, equity, and the grammar of schools. That um, in going gradeless, and the, and there are many reasons why we would want to de-emphasize grades. That there is this kind of uh, chilling and yes. paralyzing effect of grades on, on a lot of students and especially students who have maybe not uh, done well yeah. in that in that economy of grades. But I think you get what you get into and this begins to get into some of your interests in, in um, ed tech and platforms and the various uh, you know, very powerful forces that are plowing billions into education right now is what are some of the pitfalls that we need to be aware of as we transition from some of the some of these kind of old ways of doing things into a a more allegedly open or neutral space? What are some of the dangers that we need to look out for as we make that transition? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where this this whole idea of a long view gets in. If we're if we're very caught in this sort of middle of the short distance, I think we're very easily then seduced by what happens to be at hand and what happens to be easy. What hap- you know what our school board or, or head of school is pushing. Um, and yeah, and I think I mean I think some of those dangers. Like I know there's a huge push to say portfolios, um, and I. I tend to see this through the lens of the the quite privileged kids I teach. Um, you know, like we've got 3D printers, so their portfolios could be full of, you know, you know, incredibly 3D printed things. Um, we have tons of technology; they could produce really interesting, slick videos. Um, we can, you know, get somebody from the UN to come talk to us and film that and do an interview. And so, I think that shifting to something like that has its own kind of. Um, Risks, and I think this is something we need to be very clear-eyed about. And um, the point I make in my the piece I wrote for you is that you know people always say, okay, well, like look, Google is, doesn't care about GPAs, but they're still wildly inequitable inside their institution. So if we think that's going to solve it, we need to we need to think about that again. Absolutely, and and I mean, I think how many of us, how many of us gradeless educators have, have pointed to that quote of Google's Laszlo yeah. Bach, you know, yeah. of they don't even look at GPAs anymore. The grades don't predict anything, and and it just shows that you can play the game of school. And and I think after <laughs> six months of following you and and some of your colleagues too, is I don't feel that way anymore. I, I mean, I pretty much feel the exact opposite. Um. You know, I, I think we begin to get very solidly into this area of, of the tech, t- yes. tech companies' roles and jolting education out of its so-called slumber. Um, you know, don't schools need to change? Aren't these billionaires and their platforms providing a catalyst for us? Or are there very re- real reasons? And I know this is a big topic, but can you summarize some of the reasons why we should feel maybe a little bit less sanguine about this and a little cautious about what we are entering into sure. here. I, I think there's a, I think there's a few points about that. I think one is the historical point where, um, you know, you talk to teachers who've been around the system quite a bit and they're like, okay, this is just the next blackboard, you know, like we've been around, you know, we've been around this loop before and, um, 
And so, you know, I think that sometimes people we write off as being resistant to change are in fact resistant to this change because of other changes they've been through. Um, I, th I think that's part of it. I think um, another part of it is that we need to look at why are they so interested in reforming education out of all the things they could do? Why not reform mm. the legal system or the healthcare system? I mean, it, right. there, there's a push there too, but a lot of it has to do with their profit model. Um, and it's about creating new markets. Uh, that's literally what the disruption thing means. People often talk about it, but don't get into what he meant and what Clayton Christensen meant. And it really means creating a new market where there wasn't a market before and offering a product people that is um, cheaper and of less quality. That's the crucial part than what they could otherwise get. And um, and so then you're, you're essentially creating new consumers. And I think that's the part we've got to worry about. And increasingly too, you have to be like a data engineer to really understand what the heck's happening with our data. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good reason to slow down. And um, and I think that's part of how all of this works. It's like, you know, when I'm teaching uh, Romeo and Juliet to my kids and it's a, it's a tragedy, they're like, why, why are they doing that? I'm like, well, the, the whole way it's written is nobody has the time to stop and think. You know, <laughs> nobody ever does that. Nobody ever slows right. down and says, hey, you know, why don't I, you know, take a day or two here and rest on this? And yeah. And I worry that's the thing that's that's happening with attack is that we we institutionally don't have time to think culturally um, we don't have the time to and so it's it's just too easy to say hey here's this new app this new app makes my life so easy you know click yes to the data agreement and and rush on and it's something I, something I've done too where I feel guilty of having done that and and so it's um, it's not that I sort of think that I'm apart from that I, I feel similarly constrained by it. And are there any signs? I mean, I guess I guess some people, you know, might say that this is your, you know, your usual kind of um, science fiction mentality of of you know don't don't fly too near the sun, you know, the, sure. the sort of um, attitude toward this. But um, I'm wondering if we're already seeing some of the ways, uh, you know, not just obviously, you know, maybe in in a more privileged setting, well, we're seeing, you know, digital portfolios and we're having interviews with UN members and, you know, 3D printing and all that sort of stuff. Um, you say that there's uh, really kind of a lower quality product that is also kind of coming on the scene. Are we seeing how that's actually kind of exacerbating some of the inequalities that are already uh, rampant in education right now. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I, I, I see this with a lot of people talking about wanting to really bring AI in heavily um, to replace something we're doing. And um, I think of things like I, I use things like this when I was teaching grade two, like things like Starfall to help kids learn their letter sounds. Um, be because then that say then frees me up to have reading conferences with the kids. Great. Um, but I, I think the worry is that we're going to um, offload more and more onto these very scripted, narrow AI kind of programs that work very much like traditional grading does, right? Where we're going to, you know, rank you, assign you a number, you know, you have multiple choice because that's what computers do well. And yeah, I think you see this in some of the, in some of the schools and, um, I've seen 
people writing about rocket ship education and, and alt school where um, maybe in a very privileged context, those platforms, you have a good student to teacher ratio, but the ultimate goal for a lot of this is to, you know, push this into an overloaded public system and rather than hire more teachers, it's like, okay, well, why don't you stick your kids on Khan Academy? And here is, you know, a platform that will then assess them and tell you what to do next. And uh, I think that's all, you know, part of deprofessionalizing teaching as much as possible. And again, I often think like, imagine you tried to do this to um, doctors or lawyers intrinsically, right? If you push this on them, there you would it, it, it wouldn't happen. And I think it's because of the way that education is is blamed um, <laughs> for pretty much everything. And so it's easy then for Silicon Valley to step in and say, "Hey, we've got we've got your answers." <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. And I, I mean, I've seen some of it with uh, a lot of these tools are now being used for credit recovery. And sure, it, it's it's been um, kind of a tiered education, really. It's been yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have your classroom education. Then we have these students who are falling behind for for uh, many different reasons. But uh, they definitely get a second class education in these rooms where they're just interacting with computers. And actually, a lot of those uh, programs have been fudged even further uh, to the point where, uh, you know, the quality of that, even even the intended quality of that is is much lower than than what it was what it was put out to be. Absolutely. And I think, too, we we have to think through to what extent that is sometimes desirable and sometimes isn't, mm -hmm. you know, if there's, if there's easier ways for some kids to do credit recovery and they genuinely prefer being able to do some online program because it actually works better for them in their lives. Sure. That's great. I think the danger is where that, um, it's just reduced options. That's the only option you then, you then have to do it. Um, yeah. Or, or same with all sorts of on online learning. You know, if you if you enjoy using Khan Academy to help you learn, great. But if it's if it's restricted and that's your, you know, teacher replacement, that's where I think we get into huge trouble. Right, right. Well, over the you know, I think you've talked a lot about some of these threats that are looming out there on the horizon, and I think you've done a wonderful job just in terms of of alerting us to a lot of those threats. But I think one of the things that I've uh, really appreciated in the last, I don't know, I've been noticing it over the last few months is, is that, you know, if we're, not gonna, if we're not going to engage in that rhetoric of innovators or creators or entrepreneurs, actually, I think it was one of your last two articles that you wrote in uh, all their enviable mindsets. Um, what should we be talking about? What should we affirm? What are some of the conversations that you would substitute for the ones we're currently having? And I, I mean, I feel like with billions of dollars behind some of those conversations, I just wonder how do we keep ourselves alive and how do we, how do we care for those who, who most need that care in the face of all this, uh, where where so many billions of dollars are being pushed into making these imaginaries, as you call them, a reality. Yeah, I I think there's I think part of it is to recognize, um, as I think you do, that these conversations are happening, um, and they're out there, and people are are doing and have been doing this work for a long time. It's just there's no profit in it. <laughs> um, you know, and um, I, I, I often think in, in analogy with uh, with news and other sort of media. Like, um, there's a show I like called Democracy Now, 
that is an independent news show um and they're out there and they're doing the work it's just it's not the easy option we see because they just they don't have the kind of cable presence you might want so um i think the things to be looking for are i think critical pedagogy is a good word to be looking at um Mm -hmm. just because it can lead you to people doing that kind of work i think progressive right now is not a useful word um Mm. just because it's been so easily taken up by the tech um the tech people and um yeah and i think a lot of those conversations too are are really uncomfortable for a lot of people to have um i think a lot about um you know peter anderson's always the people i think of is doing good work in this like um you look at the the kind of stuff he's reading and the stacks of book he ha- books he has and he's pushing himself into all these um difficult conversations about white supremacy in education and um and listening and reading other people and being in dialogue and i think that's the kind of uh stuff we have to do and look for um and also too i think just in a lot of good disciplinary specific stuff like i think a writer's workshop in in the field of english like it's it's long established um and there's a lot of good stuff going on there that um isn't isn't premised on tech it uses tech you know you know you know to write but it's not it's not premised on buying an app um other things i think are we need to drop some of these words that that sugarcoat things like i think entrepreneur is one that it, it effectively means forget having any kind of stability about where your next meal is coming from and so i think in cases like that we need to very uh clearly talk about things like precarity and say that that's what you're really talking about you know we're not all going to be um creating the next google but there's tons of entrepreneurs who are doing things like cleaning people's houses like uh, i think that's really what people i think there's the two things there's what people uh hear they hear that you know okay my kid could be the next head of google right um but what it effectively means is um most people are going to be doing um day-to-day jobs that are not very attractive and don't pay well and so i think i think that's part of it is is to just switching to words that are more honest that um um that that have a more plain meaning um yeah i'm trying to think of other things i'm trying to think of other things that give me a lot of hope i i i think i think there's a lot i think um just connecting to people who are outside of the direct k-12 education um but aren't business leaders right (laughs) which is which is a lot of people um and i think connecting to them and listening to those voices is is great um you know writers authors um i try to read a lot of people who speak about just a whole variety of issues um yeah yeah, I don't. I, I think part of the sort of just to continue the thought. I think I think part of the very intentional issue is we don't have those easy to hand words on purpose. Right. You know, it's very easy to to knock off the ten things you're so you know supposed to say. You know, innovation, entrepreneur, creativity, and so on. And there's I think a a good reason that we don't have ten words like that that we actually need to be using. Um, I think that's something you see across the progressive left in a lot of places. Um, that that you those sort of ideas are um i don't know not as packaged as they as they maybe could be right 
And I, I, I definitely feel like uh, I think kind of taking some of the wind out of those sails, uh, people giving us those words and, and asking us to just use them sort of uncritically. Um, that's something that for me has, has very much changed over the last year. And I think a lot of that has come from just your, uh, you know, making us making us aware of some of that and, and actually going gradeless can participate in that kind of uh, progressive anthemic narrative of, uh, you know, we're moving toward this better place, but we have to definitely keep an eye on these other questions. Uh, we we uh, can very easily distract ourselves and, and maybe even worsen uh, the situation. I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. I think that uh, a lot of what, I've, I've seen in, in our conversations and in conversations with Peter Anderson is, is just um, some of this system is, is set up for us to lose and, and for us to kind of like grasp for these other options that are becoming available. And uh, I think we need to circle around each other quite a bit. And I, I, I like uh, some of the writing that you've done about community care too, as, as yeah, being a you. very important aspect of, um, you know, we, we can't just become these individual agents or entrepreneurs who are on our own and need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We, we need to rally around one another and, and really uh, care for one another in the, in the face of a lot of really dehumanizing stuff that's happening right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that the self, the whole self care mindfulness thing is very easy to package it sounds it sounds progressive you know take you know take some time for yourself um but it it it's it's essentially you know take some time for yourself and then get right back on the horse and you know and and keep going in a system that's not working um yeah so i i think i think you need to have these other ideas um and i i think the community part is really central i think we always need to in that be looking at like who are the voices here um who are the people who are speaking who's been included um and what are we actively doing uh to include voices that aren't here um and i i think a lot of that is it means active vigilance and it means yes. and it means really um constantly thinking that stuff through and so that's a different kind of work right it's not it's not like, um, you know, we're going to give up this really hectic um, task of doing grades and all of a sudden get to slow down. I think it I think it's a shift in thinking about, OK, well, where should we be putting that energy? And so I and just because it's all finite, too, I think that having a good community um, is, is a way of being able to tap into resources like uh, a lot of this, a lot of the stuff I'm. I'm writing. I'm. It's because I have found the right sort of people to listen to, you know. Say like like Audrey mm -hmm. Waters um, is is one is one yes. very clear example for me. Um, and so it's about sort of being tapped into that and, and finding people who are doing critical work and and um, tagging along and trying to to contribute. I totally agree. I think that um, you know, just looking at those forces that have that have separated us. Some of those are some of those are the traditional. Um, forces of education, you know, just kind of this overwhelming workload and, and maybe 
maybe lessening that, but then also noticing some of these other drivers that are coming online, I think, um, looking at both of those things. And, and I think it's, it's been really great um, to see someone who is obviously you're not falling into just this traditional back to basics approach, but on the other hand, really alerting us to, to all the many things that we need to be aware of, um, you know, in this, in this brave new world that people are kind of painting for us. Yeah. And I thank you for that. And I, I think the back to basics thing is like, as much as I write often about this sort of seemingly progressive edge, um, I honestly don't know which is the bigger threat. I think they, if you look at some of these really back to basics charter school stuff that's happening, especially in the UK, even, even maybe more so in the US, that's a, a huge, huge threat. And I, I think one of the dangers is we just then flop back on that. Right, you know, we become disillusioned with Silicon Valley, and um, and a lot of the back to basics people, I think, an attraction there is if if we sort of divide it up between being student centered, Silicon Valley personalized learning, they're very teacher centered, and they talk a lot about teacher workload. Um, I think there's a danger in uh, in that, you know, like it's. A lot of what they're saying is, in fact, easier for teachers, right? Whole class instruction, right. you know, no one-on-one conferences. Absolutely. Put a one to ten, put a one to ten on it. That is an easier, an easier day for teachers, and um, and so I, I think one of the things I, that's on my plate for 2018, is to really try to do more work articulating, um, what that other option looks like um, by getting into more reading more people who are doing that kind of good work already. I think I, I sometimes spend too much time sort of hate reading the Silicon Valley press. <laughs> right. um, yeah, and and um, want to sort of try to reconnect a bit more with, um, with, with people who are doing that good work. Well, Benjamin, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I, I am going to follow up with you and have a pint with you. And I, I think, uh, can we bring Francois Jord along with us as well? Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, he's on my <laughs> list of people I, I need to meet. It's funny, he's, he's, he's really close to me, but we haven't connected yet. Yeah, yeah. So it's been really great being able to connect with you over the last year, and, and thank you so much. Um, talk to you soon. Yeah, and a huge thanks to you too, and thank you for uh, this opportunity. You are welcome. Benjamin Docksteder joined me today. He teaches middle school language arts in Brussels, Belgium, and writes at Longview on Education at longviewoneducation.org. That concludes today's episode of TG2Cast. If you'd like more information, check out our website at teachersgoinggradelist.com, our Facebook group, Teachers Going Gradelist, or you can follow us on Twitter at TG2Chat. Please subscribe to the podcast to catch future installments of TG2Cast. Thanks for listening.